following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If you will, please turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Hopefully everything will be good. Worst case scenario, it's just like raining really hard, and we can just do the baptism here. We'll just send them all out in the parking lot. We'll stand in the vestibule and just watch and like yell things at them, and it'll be great. You don't have to go anywhere. Then you don't have to leave so fast. Mark chapter 12, we're going to read verses 13 to 37, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. If you don't have a Bible, just look up at the screen. We're going to begin reading here in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, we come again as, as hungry beggars to your word, just needing to hear from you, just needing to be taught by you. Uh, 
we are reminded again and again and again in our lives, in our weeks, in our events, and the things that happen to us in this world that, that this world is passing, this world is fleeting, and the things that we grasp so tightly to can be taken from us in a moment. You, your word, your truth are the only things that are eternal. And so this time this morning is not a it's not just a tradition, it's not just a perfunctory thing that churches are supposed to do. This is, this is our time to look at your eternal word and for you, the eternal God, to speak to us, to change us, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to understand, we pray. Take my feeble and weak words and use them in ways that, that defy any human logic, just to speak to hearts, to to apply the scriptures to hearts so that we walk out of here having been confronted with truth. And then, Lord, empower us to change. It's so easy to walk out and think, well, we just need to do this different or do that different, when in reality it's, it's never been about us. It's, it's not about what we can do or can't do or should do or shouldn't do. It's about, Jesus, what you are doing through us. And so remind us of our utter need for you today, Jesus, we asked, so that we don't go out of here trying to live in our own strength because whenever we do that, we just do the same things again and again. Rather, fill us with your spirit, live your life through us so that we can go out of here today and love the Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as he has required. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So is there anyone uh, in here, and just raise your hand if you are, uh, who likes to use one of those little word of the day calendars or apps or something like that on your desk? Got one, two... So two people in here are smart, and the rest of us are not, because I'm not in that group either. I've never used one, but I've heard that they uh, really do help expand your vocabulary. Well, today, for all the rest of us who don't get that uh, wonderful opportunity, I'm going to give us a word of the day, okay? So it's not like, you know, remember Pee-wee's Playhouse, that show? It had like the secret word, and it's not that, okay? Word of the day today is the word conundrum, okay? That's the word conundrum. Conundrum, as you can see, is a noun, and it means a confusing and difficult problem or question. And it's often used to refer to questions or problems where the known facts don't seem to add up or make sense, where you can look at them and you see them and you understand perhaps the facts of the question, but you can't just quite put it all together in a way that makes sense. For example, my brother-in-law went to a camp with his church's youth group this summer. He just went, they asked, uh, they needed some people to go, and so he and his wife went. And so they're up at this Christian camp in uh, the mountains of North Carolina for a week. And as he's walking through the parking lot one day, he sees a church van with a particular name on it that made him just stop and go, hmm. And being a good brother-in-law, particularly a good brother-in-law of mine, he knew the thing he needed to do, which was to take a picture of it and to send it to me. So I also could look at it and go, hmm, because I like, I like these kind of things. And so here's the, here's the picture that he sent me. Now, if you don't get this picture, okay, if you're in here and you're looking at this and you're going, I'm, I'm confused, what's funny about this, why are people laughing, I am going to have to disappoint you and not tell you the answer because it would just take way too long and it doesn't have anything to do with our message. But if you are in here and you do get the significance of this particular photo, then you can see the conundrum that is inherent, right, in the in the name itself. The name raises some uh, questions and some problems that are kind of difficult to process in our minds. Okay, that's what I mean by a conundrum. Well, keep that in mind for a moment, and let's think back to where we're at here in Mark. Uh, having 
pronounced judgment first against the temple and its sacrificial system, and then secondly against the priests, the leaders of that system, it would be fair to say, would it not, that Jesus is not the most popular guy in Jerusalem right about now. Um, he, he, he is a pain to these leaders, and, and amongst those religious leaders who run that temple and its sacrificial system, their assessment, their desires for him are quite clear at this point. They want him dead. That's the only outcome they can see that will be good. And there at the end of chapter 11, we saw their first attempt at moving toward that desired end. They asked him a question, and the question was, by what authority are you doing these things? Talking about his pronouncement of judgment on the temple and the system of worship that was inherent with, the, or that came with the with the temple. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority? In other words, if you'll remember what we talked about last Sunday, the question is: Do you think Jesus that you have some inherent authority in yourself to do and say the things you done you've done, or? Do you think you have some derived authority? Your authority is coming from some other source to do and say the things you've done. Well, considering the context of the question is his actions in stopping temple worship there in that one scene, it's clear that the only source of authority that would be able to do the kinds of things he's done is God's authority. So if we can rephrase their question now with that context in mind, they're asking him, Jesus, do you think you're God that you have this inherent authority to stop temple worship? Or do you think you are like a prophet from God? Some, you have some derived authority to come in and stop this worship. If he says yes to the first question, do you, do you have this authority in yourself? They will, no doubt, accuse him of blasphemy and run him off the outside of town and probably stone him on the spot. Because that would be their goal anyway, is to kill him. So if he says yes to that, and he's made himself equal with God, they've got an open door. If he says yes to the second question, again, no doubt, they'll accuse him of pride, of arrogance, of, of making himself out to be a prophet, and, and will do who knows what to him. And if he says no to both questions, that he doesn't have any authority within himself, or he hasn't derived it from somewhere else, they're going to accuse him of being crazy. And again, they'll get rid of him in whatever way they, they want. So there's, there's no good answer for him to make here at this particular point. And the intent of the question, as I pointed out last week, was to get him to incriminate himself so that they could legally, rightfully put him to death. Get him out of the picture, do away with him, be done with this problem. But as we saw, that didn't work out too well. Because Jesus responded to that question with a question of his own that, that would put them in the same position that they were trying to put him. It was that question about John the Baptist, I won't rehash it. And when, when they refuse to answer that question, then he does the same. And so their whole, their whole plan backfires on them. And you would think, I mean, if you're a conniving evil person like me, right? You would think that, that if, if you're these guys, you know, maybe that would be a clue that this question approach is not the best way to go after Jesus. Maybe he's smarter than us and he's going to find some way to turn the tables on us. So maybe we shouldn't do that with him. And yet, as you can see here in the text we read this morning, they don't quite pick up on that fact. I mean, they, they come back because this section of scripture that we read contains a series of four questions or to be more accurate, here's our word of the day, four conundrums that are going to be posed here in this context as part of this discussion between Jesus and the leaders of the people. The first three 
are aimed by the religious leaders to Jesus in an attempt to, to get him to say something or do something that will get him in trouble. They, they pose these conundrums, these very difficult, and they are very difficult, very confusing problems and questions trying to get him in trouble. These are not honest questions. Because when Jesus is approached by people who have honest questions, he gives them honest answers. But when he's approached by people who have other intentions for their questions, then he responds accordingly. They're trying to incriminate and or discredit him in some way through these questions. And so you're going to see Jesus respond accordingly to them. That's the first three. The fourth and final question, though, notice, was aimed by Jesus to the religious leaders. So he turns the tables on them. He, he then poses them with a conundrum that's, again, not really designed to discredit them per se. Rather, it's more designed to reveal how little they actually understand about the scriptures and about the coming of the Messiah. That's its real purpose. And so it's a little different, but it's still clearly in that same vein of conundrums that the first three are. And this morning, we're going to look at the first two of these four conundrums. We're going to look at the first two, and then we're going to stop, make a few observations, applications, and then next week we'll come back and look at the final two. This means this is one of those uh, two-part sermons I sometimes do where by coming today, you automatically commit yourself to coming back next week to hear the end of it, because you won't, this isn't the whole sermon today. I'm just going to stop it after the second one, and then we'll come back next week. So that's the plan. That's the context. That's the introduction. Let's jump into the text. The, the first conundrum posed by these leaders to Jesus is what I would call a political conundrum. Now, I've kind of given each of the conundrums a category or a title for us to think through to be able to keep them organized and understand them. The first one is a political conundrum. Mark tells us that they, which is referring back to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders from the previous scene, that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, just to refresh our memories, uh, we've seen the Pharisees numerous times now in Mark's gospel, have we not? They've shown up again and again and again. This is the main religious party within Judaism in Jesus' day. You can't think of it like a different denomination. Think of it like our political system. Judaism is a whole, but within Judaism, there are these various parties that are vying for power and position within the movement. And the Pharisee party was the populist conservative party of Jesus' day. Think of them kind of like the mainstream Republicans in our, in our political system, okay? That's kind of what they were like. There were groups farther to the right of them. There are groups to their left. We'll see one of them in a moment. But, but that's sort of a quick reminder as to who the Pharisees are, the conservative populist party, religious party in Jesus' day. The Herodians, though, are not a religious party. They are what kind of a party? Does anyone remember? They are a Political party. Straight up political party. That's who they are. These are the supporters of Herod the king, who of course isn't really a king. He's really just a governor who has been put, put in, in power and control of this area by Rome. And as a puppet of the Roman government, Herod's main job is to keep the peace and to impose Rome's will there over Judea, over the Jewish people. And so what we have here in this scene are representatives of the main religious party, as well as representatives of the only political party. Rome doesn't have a counterpart here. So the only political party coming to Jesus to try, Mark says, to trap him in his talk. And so they ask him a question. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. <laughs> Just a funny way of, of leading into this. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So here's our question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So, so you see what they're doing, right? After opening with this attempt to kind of butter him up with all these compliments, they finally get down to, to business when they ask him this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or is it not? And the key word here is the word lawful. Now, when you and I first see that word, we tend to instantly, because of our context today, think of, of civil law, if I can refer to it that way. We think of the law of the land. We think of the law of the government. And if that's what they're referring to, then this is a really silly question because clearly paying taxes is lawful because Rome says you got to do it. Okay? In terms of civil law, in terms of just governmental law, yes, it's lawful. you got to pay taxes, but, but that's clearly not what they mean by it. They're not asking if it's lawful in a civil sense. They're asking, is it lawful in a biblical sense? In other words, are you disobeying God by paying taxes to these Romans, to these Gentile lords who have conquered our people? Do you understand more of the question now? It's not, is it lawful civilly? It's, is it lawful biblically? And to understand why this is such a conundrum, you have to have at least a sliver of basic knowledge about the context of, of the day in which this question is being asked. You see, Judea, what we think of as Palestine, was conquered or annexed as a fully-fledged Roman province in AD 6. And shortly after it was annexed, there was, they, they issued this tax, what they called a head tax on all the people. So if you got eight people in your family, you got eight taxes you have to pay, okay? So everybody's got to pay a tax, and this angered the people of Israel because nobody ever likes paying taxes. That's not new, right? So this angered them, but it particularly angered them because, because they were paying taxes to this Gentile government, this Gentile ruler, for, so he could conquer their land even more, so he could rule it and reign over it. God's land, God's people. He's gonna, he wants us to underwrite that. They were, they're angry, and so... In about 80, a little after 86, 7 or 8, somewhere in there, a guy named Judas of Galilee led a major revolt, trying to overthrow Roman rule there in Judea. Now, you may not know much about history, but let me ask you a very simple question. Jewish peasants versus Roman soldiers. Take a guess who won. Very good. Roman soldiers won, Okay. The revolt went very badly, both for Judas and for all of his followers. You even see it referenced later in the New Testament. They're talking about these kinds of things that were going on. The revolt didn't go well for him, but ever since that revolt and ever since the, the taxes had been levied, the people of, of Judea had chafed under this concept of paying taxes to this Gentile ruler to rule over God's people and God's land. And if we can look at it from the Roman side for just a moment, which you need to, the Romans and their representatives, i.e. Herod, had been really sensitive to anyone who gave any hint of maybe not wanting to pay the taxes again, out of fear that maybe again they would want to lead a revolt against Rome and have a big mess and it'd be just a big pain. Okay, do you see the conundrum developing here? If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is going to anger the crowds, the people, because they have been told, particularly by the Pharisees, the populist conservative party, they have been told by the Pharisees that paying these taxes is a terrible thing. If he endorses paying these taxes, then he's going to be portrayed as a traitor to God's people, to God's land, and to God himself. 
However, if he says, no, it is not lawful, which would have been very popular amongst the crowds, well, then the Herodians are standing right there to listen, to hear his sedition with their own ears and perhaps arrest him to take action to stop this other Galilean zealot from leading a revolt against Rome like the first Galilean zealot did, okay? So, so like the question there in chapter 11, there's no good answer. Yes or no, he's in trouble, and so they think, they think they've got him, right? However, as you can see like last time, Jesus is prepared. He, he knows their hypocrisy. And I love that Mark points this out to us because they are, they are hypocrites. Neither the Pharisees nor the Herodians could care less about paying taxes to Caesar. I mean, the Herodians obviously didn't care because that was paying their that was their salary, right? You pay their taxes, they're, they're, they're paying the light bill with that money. So, so, so they're, they're in the employment of Rome, so the Herodians don't care. And the Pharisees, for all of their populist rhetoric to the people, oh, this is terrible, we, oh, they've clearly been paying the taxes themselves, or otherwise they'd be in jail. They wouldn't be standing there if they weren't paying the taxes. So they've been paying the taxes too, so they're, they're hypocrites on this issue. And so he says to them, why, why put me to the test? I think he's just called them stupid. But anyway, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And of course, somebody had one in their pocket. I mean, this evil coin that probably shouldn't be paid to anybody. But one had, somebody had one, and they bring it to him, and he says to them, he holds it up, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say to him, Caesar's. That's an obvious question, right? Um, you ever bought a book? Just, you know, whatever kind of book, Bible, new book. You get a book. How many of you, the first thing you do when you get your book, new book, is you open up the front cover and you write your name in it? Anybody? Am I the only one? I have a stamp, actually. I have a, I really, I have a, a press stamp. It's really cool. Like, you put the first couple pages in there and you press it down and it, it makes an imprint on the page that says, from the library of Stacy Potts. It has my initials in it, okay? So I, why, do, why do we do that? We do that because we want people to know it's ours, right? If, if you borrow my book and then, like, 12 years later, which has happened, like you, you finally are looking and you're like, oh, this was his. You know, I got to give it back. You know, we want people to know, it, to know it's ours. So, so Jesus is asking him the question, hey, you know, who, who put their picture and their name on this little piece of silver? I found one for you here. Tiberius is the, is the Caesar at this time. This is a Tiberian denarius. This is the coin, not the coin, but it's like the coin. Maybe it's the coin, I don't know, that Jesus is holding up to. He's like, who, who took all the trouble to put their name and their picture on this little piece of silver? And they're like, Caesar, Tiberius. Jesus says to them then, okay, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marvel at him, Mark says. I mean, hey, the guy went through all the trouble to put his picture and his name on this thing, so give it back to him. Something that, you know, bears the image of Caesar should probably fulfill Caesar's purposes. And likewise, the things that bear the image of God should probably fulfill, oh, wait, oh, oh, I see what Jesus was doing there. That was brilliant. Faithfulness to God, he's saying, is not shown by paying or not paying taxes, which is the issue in this particular context. Faithfulness to God is shown by fulfilling the purposes for which God has made us, namely to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we will see in next week. I see next week, brilliant, right? Just brilliant. Jesus has handled this first conundrum, 
this political conundrum that he was placed in like it was nothing, and he has left his questioner speechless, all right? So one down, two to go. Now, second group approaches him. And for the first time now, Mark introduces us to a second religious party that was active in Jesus' day, a group known as the Sadducees, or as my spell check would have us know them as the Sauces. <laughs> I'm typing and I'm like, Sauce? Uh, could you have to take the two Ds and an E out? Yeah, I guess I see it. The Sauces came up to him. And while, while they're mentioned many other times in some of the other Gospels, this is the first time that Mark has introduced them to us. And so he gives us as readers just a little bit of context uh, to understand them and why they're coming up with this particular question. Uh, this is a theological conundrum, if you're taking notes. The first one was a political one. This is a theological conundrum that they're about to pose to Jesus. And the detail that he gives us about them is that they say there is no resurrection. Now, if you go back to my little political party analogy that I used earlier, I, I said the Pharisees were like the you know, mainstream Republicans, sort of the populist, conservative party, religious party of Jesus' day. If they are like the Republicans, then the Sadducees are like the liberal elite Democrats. They're not the populist, run-of-the-mill Democrats. These are, these are uh, more left-wing than that. Sadducees tended to be wealthy, educated, powerful, connected kind of people. Uh, religiously, they denied that anything other than the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they denied that anything other than those first five books were authoritative for man. So they would have, wouldn't care about the Psalms. They wouldn't care about the prophets. They wouldn't care about any of the other history books. They would just deny all those things. So, so basically, anything past Deuteronomy doesn't matter to them. And this is why they didn't believe in an afterlife of any sort, at least this is what they would say, uh, either for the righteous or for the wicked. They would deny it for everyone. In their minds, once you died, you died. Game over. And this was a point of regular debate between the Sadducees and these other religious groups, particularly the Pharisees. And that debate, that disagreement, wasn't just kept at that level of the leadership. It it went down to the people. So the people who were more conservatively minded, you know, religiously, theologically, and followed the Pharisees, they would say there is an afterlife. Those who were a little more liberally minded would say that there isn't, and they'd side with the Sadducees. And so this was kind of a general debate in Jesus's day. So the Sadducees come up with what they think is a question that will stump him, as I am sure. I am sure, we don't have any proof of this, but I think it's a specific question. I'm sure it had stumped so many others before him and it would prove him to be, just like everyone around them, theologically weak. Okay, so this is, this is their goal. Here's the question, or maybe I should say, here is the story. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, pause and let's just make sure you understand that first part, because if you don't get this, you don't get the rest of the story. This is something known as leveret marriage. Lever, lever, L-E-V-I-R is Latin for brother, so it's not a Greek or Hebrew concept. It's, a, it's just referred to this way. It's the idea that, that in, a, in a nation, in a society where land and tribes matter, the inheritance of land is of utmost importance. So in a nation like Israel where you're broken out into tribes and then within each tribe there's certain clans, within each clan there's certain families, they've each been given certain allotments or inheritances of land and they have to protect that. Because if you, know, you marry somebody from this other family or from this other clan or from this other tribe, we don't want to transfer the land over to them somehow. We've got 
We need to protect it, keep it within the family. And so this situation would come up. Normally, that'd be no problem. You know? get married, marry whoever you want, have kids. It's going to pass on to your firstborn child. But what happens in the rare case where a man marries a woman, perhaps from another family, clan, or tribe, and before they're able to have a son, he dies? Does she inherit the land? What if she's from another family? Does that family now get to take the land that was part of this family's land? Or if she's from another clan, does she get to take their, another tribe would be the worst of all. Does this tribe get to take some land away from this other tribe? You see, the, okay, you may not understand the problem, but that's the problem, okay? That's the, the, the issue they're trying to address. And so in Deuteronomy 25, Moses had prescribed a system. It's kind of weird to our perspective, but it worked. It was a system to make sure that that didn't happen. If a man died and he didn't have a male heir, the brother of that man is supposed to marry that man's widow, and the first male child they have is going to be counted legally in every other sense as the son of the dead husband. So he now, that first son, will inherit the land of the dead father. The second son would inherit the land of the new father. Does that, okay, do you, again, do you understand the system, how it worked? This way... The, the land wouldn't change hands. This way, the inheritance wouldn't get mixed up. Everything would stay like it was supposed to. And so this was the system known as, as leveret marriage. It was a way of keeping all this inheritance intact. And so with that background, here's the scenario that the Sadducees put to Jesus. There's this, these seven brothers. First one takes a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. So the second one took her. And he died, leaving no offspring. And the third one, likewise. And the seven... All of them took her, all of them died, all of them left no offspring. Last of all, the woman dies. Therefore, Jesus, in the resurrection, when they all, eight of them, rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as wife. And they're like, aha, <laughs> you know, we got him, right? Because in this life, one woman couldn't be the husband of, or excuse me, the wife of seven men, seven brothers. She's, she was the wife of each one individually, but she can't be the wife of all of them at once. So in this afterlife you talk about Jesus, when they're all alive at the same time, whose wife will she be now? How does that work, huh? You can almost like, they got a little bit of this going when they do it, right? <laughs> I don't have much of that going, but they had it going, all right? That, that's a conundrum. That's a conundrum from, from their point of view, from their perspective, because they assume, and this is important, note this, they assume that this afterlife that Jesus and the Pharisees have been describing is going to look and operate exactly like life today looks and operates. There's this like apples to apples kind of thing in their mind. Well, whatever we see now and however things work now, it's going to be that, maybe a little different, maybe, you know, whatever. But it's going to be basically the same. Jesus says back to them then, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And again, just pause for a moment. He, he's exposing to them that their presuppositions about the afterlife are wrong from the get-go. See, it's, it's not going to be just like life is now. It's not going to look, work, and operate exactly the same. It's going to be different. Case in point, since you brought it up, Sadducees, let's talk about marriage. Okay? In heaven, people aren't married to each other like they are now. And some of you are like, what? <laughs> like, you're like, I thought we were going to be like... No, we don't even understand this concept. He says, rather, they're going to be like angels in heaven who, dot, 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 are not married. 
That's the point of, of likening them to angels. Angels aren't married. We're not going to be married. That's his point. Marriage is just one specific example brought up by them. But his larger point to them is that resurrection life is not going to be like life today as we know it. It's going to be different. It's going to be much better, but they don't understand that, and so he goes on. And as for the dead being raised, since that's their larger point, this questioning of resurrection, have you not read in the book of Moses, notice that he quotes one of their books to them, one of the ones they recognize as authoritative, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, how God spoke to him, Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He's saying, what's the point of God coming to Moses in this moment? And he's like, I am the God of the corpse of Abraham. And I am the God of whatever is left of Jacob. And the God of the bones of Isaac. Like, how much assurance is that giving Abraham or Moses at this moment? You're laughing because you're getting the point that Jesus is making here. It makes no sense to come to Moses and to affirm himself as the God of the dead. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham is still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They are quite wrong. Like he just... He doesn't even debate them. He just tells them, you're wrong. You're quite wrong, in fact. Hey, husbands, don't try that with your wives. Next argument, <laughs> you are quite wrong. You know, don't. <laughs> Bad call. Jesus does it. We can't, all right? He, he solves their riddle and shuts their mouths with biblical truth, okay? Two, two conundrums down. Now, we have to stop here for time's sake this morning, but we're going to pick up here next week. Uh, but before we go, I want to make a couple of observations, applications, okay? Think about these this week as we come back into it next Sunday. First, in relation to the taxes question, Jesus' point, as I already said, was that faithfulness to God was not shown simply by doing or not doing something, but rather Faithfulness to God was shown by fulfilling the purpose for which God had made us, right? That's, I think, his larger point to them. And yet, most of the times, I think we, like the Pharisees, would prefer to define faithfulness by our responses to something rather than by our heart toward God himself. Like, if the question is simply, do I pay taxes or not? Do I drink or not? Do I do this or not? Do I whatever? Okay, you fill in the blank with the item. It's a much easier way for me to, to answer whether or not I, I'm being faithful to God. But I can do that one. You can do that one. This is pretty simple. But if the question is, where are our hearts really aligned with God or our hearts aligned with God, focused on him, then, then that, that's a little bit harder and much more demanding. Jesus' answer should raise a question in our minds. He says that we should, should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which in this context refer to this coin, the money, the paying of taxes, but we should render to God the things that are God's. Well, what's that? What, what in our lives or amongst our possessions belongs to God? And, of course, everybody's going to get that answer right because we'll say, well, everything belongs to him. We, I get that. But could I point out maybe an obvious but overlooked concept there? You're right. Everything belongs to God. Very good. But most notably, you do. More than your money and your house and your stuff, you belong to God. Like the coin, 
You and I have been made in his image. We have been stamped, so to speak, with the image of God. And, and if the coin bearing the image of Caesar should be given back to Caesar to fulfill his purposes, well, then certainly those of us who have been stamped with the image of God should be given back to God to fulfill his, to be pleasing to him. And, and what pleases him most is when we love him above everything else, right? Okay, hold that thought for a moment. Second, in relation to the resurrection life question that the Sadducees asked, the Sadducees' presupposition is actually not far off from many Christians, okay? That the, that the afterlife, that heaven is just going to be like our life today, only better. I mean, you, you just go, you don't have to talk to people, just listen to them talking about, about heaven and what they're expecting, and, and you will get that point very quickly. Many Christians view heaven in the very way that John Piper describes when he asks one of the most convicting questions I have ever read. Some of you already know where this is going, but for those of you who don't, listen carefully. Piper asks this, he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven, and listen, please, very carefully this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends and family that you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and there was no human conflict, no natural disasters, no pain, no troubles, no disappointment, no death. None of those things. You had all the good, none of the bad. But Jesus wasn't there. Would you still want to go? And that's not a question you can just like, you know, process in a second, I think. I mean, this is the kind of question that, that you sit there and you're just like struck by. I mean, imagine what he described, he described paradise. You know, Jamie and I were talking the other week, and um, we were talking about uh, terrorists, some of the things that have gone on recently in the news, and, and she was just bringing up the point, you know, how they, you know, they're willing to do this because, you know, for these guys who go out and fight jihad, they're, they get their paradise with 70 virgins, right? And I was like, yeah, but, you know, a lot of Christians aren't much far off from that. It might not be 70 virgins, but it might be rock climbing and, you know, all my friends are back together and it's happiness forever. <laughs> What's the difference? You know, tomato, tomato, really, at that point. If Jesus isn't there, would you still want to go? Would you be satisfied with paradise without Jesus? And I, I fear that for too many of us, we would be quite satisfied with that. If you were given that choice today, paradise, no Jesus, you would be like, okay, I'll take that. That sounds pretty good. And if we would be satisfied with that, then I think it makes it abundantly clear that we truly don't love him more than everything else. That's my assumption, my self-assessment when I examine my own heart. We love the stuff he's made. We love the experiences he can give. We love, love all this other, these other things, you know, the things I can enjoy, the things I can have, and the pride I can get from them. Wait, that sounds familiar. That sounds like last week and the world what we would see here is that if we would take paradise without Jesus, then he is not our greatest pleasure. He is not our greatest possession, and he is not our greatest pride. We really do love this world and the things in it, and we would be more than happy to trade him for all of that, maybe in just a sanctified, you know, Christianized kind of version. Folks, I, I'm not trying to beat a drum. I, I'm not, I don't have a hobby horse in this, but I am calling us again to examine our hearts. 
because <laughs> Jesus isn't, as I have said, and I, maybe you don't get this analogy, I say he's not calling us to put on his jersey and wave his banner. What I mean by that is he's not looking for people just to jump on his team, where you can put on the jersey sometimes, and then when it doesn't suit you, you don't like it, you take it off kind of thing, you know, you just move on. Uh, he, he doesn't, <laughs> it's not fantasy religion, like I drafted Jesus, so everything's good now, I'm going to go back to my life. It's not how this works. He's calling us to live for ourselves, excuse me, not live for ourselves, but to live for him and him to long, alone. If we, all we want to do is just add Christianity into our lives, maybe take it off when it's not helpful, folks, I'm telling you, this, this isn't right. It's not right. We want it to season our enjoyment of this world. We don't want it to eradicate our love of this world. We want to live our lives for ourselves and somewhere deep down, some of us have convinced ourselves that God is okay with that. And I'm telling you this morning, he is not. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your time. God doesn't want your service. God doesn't want your talents. God doesn't want your family. God doesn't want your prayers. God doesn't want your worship, your songs, your Bible reading, or any of the other things. You know what he wants most of all? Your heart. He wants you to want him more than anything else. That's what God wants, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus died for our sins to make that possible, folks. He didn't die to sanctify our goals and dreams. He didn't die just to be an add-on to your life. He died to replace it. And my question to you this morning is, do you believe that? And are you living that? And if you're not, you need to repent. I need to repent. I have been convicted all week by these things. I need to repent and we need to examine our hearts and confess to God that we are more in love with this world and its stuff and its pleasures and its pride than we are with him. And we need to plead with him that Jesus will change us from the inside out. And as we get ready to partake in the Lord's table this morning, I want to give you a moment to do that very thing. So will you close your eyes and bow your head just for a moment? I'm going to let us sit here for a moment in silence. And in this moment, I want you to examine your heart, the things we've looked at. How do you define faithfulness to God? <laughs> what would you be content with in the life to come? Is your heart fully focused on Jesus, on loving him, loving God with all of its heart and soul and mind? Examine your heart. Repent what Confess what needs to be confessed. Repent where you need to repent. And ask that Jesus do these things in and through you.